All right, so those uh, first couple paragraphs in the notes there just reflect uh, the idea that up to this point uh, in the class, I think this is our fourth or fifth uh, session of the class. Morning, guys. Uh, we've The things that we've talked about that have been laying the foundation for how to understand conflict. And if you were to get um, uh, training from a secular perspective on dealing with conflict or anger management, uh, you would not get that at all. Right? No, one, no one's interested in having a God-centered view of conflict in the world. Uh, no one's interested in understanding the nature of conflict from a biblical perspective. But all of what we've talked about so far is really foundational. It's groundwork, um, and it's, it's setting the context of the conversation of conflict. With today's lesson, we're going to continue that you know, solidly biblical perspective, which you wouldn't get from a worldly perspective. Uh, but we're going to start talking about the, the source of conflict, the nature of conflict. And uh, this is absolutely critical because this gets to the core of the issue. Uh, when you think about any conflict that you might have, whether it's a, uh, a momentary spat that you have with someone, uh, you know, an exchange, whether verbally or text or whatever, or an ongoing kind of bigger relational conflict that lasts days or weeks or years that really defines a relationship you might have, you could talk about that conflict in terms of the externals. Well, he said this, and she said that, and he did this, and she did that. Um, I had a conversation with someone this week who constant they're in constant conflict with uh, another person, and that was a lot of where they wanted to, or at least where the, where the conversation was uh, from their perspective. Uh, but if we don't get to the core issue, then you might solve a particular disagreement or a particular Uh, instance of conflict, but then you're just going to have another one a few minutes later or the next day or whatever. And so it's critical for us, if we're going to uh, think about conflict and address conflict in our hearts uh, in a way that uh, truly solves the problem, uh, that we understand the source of it. And Scripture gives us that source. Uh, And this is one of those aspects that I think Often, uh, as believers, we are not taught, I know I wasn't taught growing up in the church, how to understand the scripture in this way, in terms of how God reveals to us uh, the the nature of the heart. Obviously, you can see the lesson title, The Heart of Conflict. Uh, And, you know, as uh, you you may have heard before, it's, you know, uh, that turn turn of phrase, the... uh, uh, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Uh, here, the heart of conflict is conflict in the heart. So we're going to talk about what the Bible teaches about the heart uh, with respect to it being the source of conflict. So you have James 4 there in front of you, but if you have a Bible, you might want to turn to it there because I think it can be helpful to have kind of your own uh, your own Bible where you see it in, in, in your own text so that in the future when you come across it again, you're like, oh yeah, I remember I remember that lesson. But James 4 really is uh, a helpful passage because it asks the critical question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's exactly what James says in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? And then he answers that question, By saying, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures." So he asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts? And he gives the answer. The answer is your pleasures that wage war in your members and kind of a parallel statement, you lust and do not have. Your pleasures, you have pleasures and you have lust. Now the word pleasures there translates the Greek word hedone from which we get the idea of hedonism, which is the pursuit of of pleasure, uh, that everything is uh, 
aimed at increasing pleasure, decreasing pain. Uh, synonyms, as you can see there, would be delight or enjoyment, just a, 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 an experience of joy and happiness and, and pleasure. And in Scripture, this particular word always has a bad connotation, right? Pleasure in and of itself, we can talk about pleasure in very positive ways. Like, uh, hey, I went to the beach and had a pleasurable time. Or, you know, we had a dinner party and we had a pleasurable time. So we, we could talk, use that word and talk in a positive way. But in Scripture, whenever this word is used, it's always in negative context. And that's critical because of the fact that James uses it here uh, to help us understand the source of quarrels. Uh, so you can see there in Luke 8:14, when Jesus is giving the parable of the seeds, and he says, "The seed which fell among thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So these are people who respond quickly to the gospel. Uh, and it, it appears as though they're believers, they've trusted in Christ, they've given their life to him. But then as they move forward in life, that faith which they have expressed gets choked out, gets constricted by those three things, worries, riches, and pleasures. Uh, the, the pursuit of the things of this world. So that's obviously a negative connotation. Or uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. This is something that we can be enslaved to, and I think we see that in the world today, especially with technology, how people enslave themselves to movies, to social media, to things that, uh, that give them pleasure, obviously drugs of all kinds. Um, there's that uh, pleasure response, uh, pleasure uh, response in the brain where you know, when, when you see that you have a notification, you know, certain chemicals are released and you experience delight, and that's what causes it to become addicted. Um, and then 2 Peter 2.13, the unrighteous counted a pleasure to, de- to revel in the daytime. Uh, they delight to in- engage in wickedness in the, in the broad daylight. So pleasure, just the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of enjoyment. I just want life to be easy. I want the things that, uh, that make life uh, delightful, full of joy. That's one reason that we have conflict. We have things that we want thinking they'll make us happy. And when we can't have those things, uh, we're in conflict with what other people uh, want, uh, that they think will make them happy. The second word he uses is lust. And that translates the word epithumia, which means a strong desire. Right? We typically think of lust in a sexual sense, but biblically the word is not inherently sexual. It's used in sexual contexts. But the context, this is a word that has both positive and negative um, implications, just depending on the context. But it, it's always referring to a strong, compelling desire. Uh, like I could say, hey, I, you know, I wish uh, I could have um, Chick-fil-A today, but it's a Sunday and they're closed, so oh well. But if I, had, if I lusted... After Chick-fil-A today, if I can use that term, if I desired Chick-fil-A so strongly, so compellingly that we could say I'm lusting after it, then I would find some way somehow to, to get after it. Or because I you know, couldn't, because they're closed, <laughs> uh, that would produce a negative emotional response in my heart of depression or, or anger uh, because I can't have what I want. So we're talking about... Uh, desires that are strong, that are compelling, uh, that really uh, move us uh, and, and cause us to take action or to respond emotionally. So one positive example is 1 Timothy 3.1, where Paul says it's a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. So one who wants to be an elder, uh, it, it shouldn't be just something like, oh yeah, I could be an elder, or I could not be an elder, or whatever, I could be a deacon, or I could be a mystery leader, or I could be a nursery worker. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter, it just it's something that would be nice. No, no, no. If one, if one wants to be an elder, there has to be an internal compulsion. 
Like, I just feel compelled to pursue this ministry. I feel like God is calling me, if we can use that language, uh, because there's such a compelling desire to do it. I think there has to be that kind of compelling desire because the work of an elder is so challenging. There's so many difficult aspects of it that, uh, you know, especially when you're not getting paid for it, like Pastor Allen or other lay elders as we've had it over the years uh, and will continue to have as the Lord provides. Um, you know, if, if you're not being compensated, then you're, you have to have something that compels you uh, to do it. But even more so, you know, it's been said, if you, if you could be anything other than a pastor, do that, because being a pastor is, is very difficult. And I can certainly attest to that. Um, but it's a strong, compelling desire that's good, that's honorable. Uh, or Jesus said of himself in Luke twenty two fifteen, I have earnestly desired... I have earnestly lusted to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus is talking to the disciples, and they're obviously in the upper room the night before, or the night that Jesus was arrested, the night before he died. And he tells them, I've been looking forward to this. I've been longing for this. I've been desiring this, uh, this meal with you. So that's a good thing. That's a good, strong, compelling desire. And so we can have all kinds of desires that are good, and, and compelling desires that really motivate us and empower us uh, to, to take action in our lives. And that's a good thing. But there's also negative desires, right? So 1 Corinthians 10.6 is a negative example. Now these things happen, for example, for us, so that we would not crave, and that's the same word, crave evil things as they also crave. Now that's talking about when... Israel was at Mount Sinai. Moses was up on the mountain. Uh, He was getting the Ten Commandments from God. Of course, Israel, the people, had no idea what was going on up there. They just knew, hey, Moses has been up there for 40 days. What in the world? Is he ever coming back? And so they tell Aaron, hey, we don't know what happened to Moses, so why don't you go ahead and make a couple of golden calves for us so we can worship uh, God and uh, and." Not only did they commit that act of idolatry, but they committed acts of sexual immorality, as uh, earlier in the passage it says uh, there in 1 Corinthians 10. So the people craved a physical representation. They craved an idol that they could bow down and worship to. They wanted something they could see uh, as a representation of God. And they had uh, sexual cravings that they desired and, and that they enacted. And so craving something evil obviously is evil. Or how we often use the word Matthew 5.28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That that compelling desire of I want uh, sexual pleasure and so I'm going to lust, I'm going to desire, I'm going to imagine and, and consider in a sinful way Uh, engaging in sexual activity with another person who's not my wife. So lust, all that to say, lust is a strong, compelling desire. Pleasures, the the desire for delight, the desire for enjoyment. Those are the the explanation for why we have conflicts. We have desires. We have the desire for pleasure. We have the desire for whatever else that are at odds with, either with God's desires because they're inherently sinful or they're at odds with the desires and the lusts of other people. And so we could summarize all of that. Why do I do what I do? Why do I have conflicts? Because I want what I want. Because I want what I want. This is so critical. If you have conflicts that you can think of in your own mind, even right now, uh, whether it's a, you know, a quick conflict that you had in, in any particular moment, maybe yesterday you had a conflict with somebody, or if there's an ongoing conflict in your life, you can just ask yourself, what was I wanting in that situation? Or if it's a long-term thing, what am I wanting? You know, if I'm continually at odds with this person, what am I wanting that puts me at odds with them? You know, as we said last time, there are those situations where you're really a passive, innocent party, if you will, and it's somebody else who's, who's sinning against you, and that's why there's conflict. But 
let's just assume for a moment that that you've had some kind of contribution. What is it that you're wanting that has given rise to this conflict? Not to say that you're the only one at fault, but for your part, as far as it depends on you, what are you wanting? And there's always going to be some explanation for that. Sometimes the things that we want, in fact, I would say often the things that we want are good things. Uh, We just want peace in the home. Uh, We we just want some quiet. (laughs) Uh, We don't want all this noise and banging, you know, neighbors with their bass turned up on New Year's (laughs) Eve, as Owen and I were talking earlier. Uh, That's not a bad thing to want that. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. Uh, Sometimes uh, we just want uh, comfort. Um, You know, we have our preference, for example, of the temperature that the thermostat is set at. And and our spouse, you know, has has a different, their body uh, handles temperature differently. So they want it at a different temperature and... And there's nothing in the world wrong, wanting 68 degrees or 73 degrees or whatever it is that your body craves at <laughs> 60. Uh, but when that's at odds with someone else, then there's a problem, right? Because your desires are in conflict. Um, I had another one in my mind, but you get, you know, it just, there, there's an infinite number of things that we could desire that are good things. Uh, that are positive things, that are even God-honoring things, uh, that uh, when when we want them more than we should, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, uh, when, when we want them too much, they become sinful. Uh, in my experience, it's pretty rare that uh, among believers, conflicts are over sinful, inherently sinful desires. I want to go get some drugs and you're not, you're not letting me. Okay. I don't, I don't typically see that in the counseling room in my office. Um, obviously that can happen, uh, but maybe uh, whatever, just you know, other sinful desires. Um, but, um, but typically what I see is believers having otherwise good, honorable, even God honoring desires, but, wanting it so badly that they're willing to fight to get what they want. Um, I mean, just recently, hearing from a husband um, when he and his wife are in conflict, I want her to stop pestering me. And so as a means by which he attempts to get her to stop pestering, he screams and curses and breaks things in the house trying to get her to stop pestering. That is not good. That is not good. Is it okay for him to want her to stop pestering him? Sure. You know, if, if that's an accurate description of, what's, of what she's doing, fine. But that is not how you respond uh, to, that, to that desire or in order to get what you want. So you can always ask yourself in any given conflict, what am I wanting? What am I wanting? And am I wanting something that is good? Is it evil? And am I wanting even something good to the degree that I'm willing to sin? We'll come back to that and and reaffirm those statements. But we can go even deeper than, than this, just beyond the simple wants of any given moment. And we can ask ourselves, why am I wanting what I'm wanting? So in this moment, I'm wanting, you know, peace and quiet, or I'm wanting comfortable temperature, or I'm wanting, you know, whatever else. Uh, Why am I wanting that? Uh, And that's where, again, Scripture really helps us by uh, explaining to us where our desires come from. uh, And how we can understand even why we want what we want. And to understand this, we have to do uh, some uh, kind of thinking about how Scripture reveals our our nature, our makeup as human beings. So why do I want what I want? Well, it's because of who we are in terms of how we've been made. Uh, The Bible teaches that human beings are dichotomous beings. 
Dichotomous simply means we are made up of two parts, body and soul, or you could say material or immaterial, you could say spiritual, physical. Dichotomy just means to cut something in, into two parts. Um, and we, we see this at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. So that's the physical, that's the material part. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. Uh, and so that's, a living being literally is the word soul. He became a soul. So he, he had a material part, the, the dust, which obviously turned to skin and bones and organs and all of that. Uh, and Lord breathed into him the breath of life and created a soul in Adam. That's the very beginning. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So as Jesus is talking about uh, what happens even when we die, he goes back to those two different parts of us, the body and the soul. He doesn't refer to any other parts. Uh, James 2.26 for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So here he uses the word spirit, but to communicate the same thing, that there's two parts of us. Uh, a material part, the body, and the immaterial part of us, the, the spirit or the soul. Uh, and then Proverbs, a tranquil heart, that's the immaterial part, is life to the body, material part, but passion is rottenness to the bones. And you could, you know, there's just so many passages. You have a couple more here uh, that you can look at. And what we see when we put uh, all of what Scripture says together is that the immaterial part of us, the spiritual part of us, is referred to in Scripture using different words like mind, body, excuse me, not body, mind, spirit, soul, heart. Those are the four key terms that Scripture uses to refer to that spiritual, immaterial part of us. And you can ask, well, why does it use those different words? I don't know. That's just the way God has uh, inspired Scripture to talk about uh, our immaterial part. Now, there is no clear way to distinguish those terms. Uh, you might be familiar with the trichotomy position that mankind is made up of, of body, soul, and spirit. Uh, that uh, we are trichotomous, tri obviously meaning three, and that the the soul part of us is uh, what engages our relationship with God. The spirit part of us is what engages our relationship uh, with kind of ourselves or self-awareness. Uh, there's different ways that those have been distinguished or, or uh, identified as distinct uh, parts of mankind. You know, people have said if you have a problem with your body, you go to your medical doctor. If you have a problem with your soul, you go to a, a psychologist. Uh, psychology literally means the study of the soul. If you go, have you a problem with your spirit, you go to, to your pastor for help. Uh, those kind of things. But the problem is, Scripture does not give us that distinction. It doesn't give us the opportunity to make. Uh, lines or to draw lines uh, along those ways. In fact, when it even refers to multiple parts of us, it uh, it uh, uses that in a way to refer to all of us. So Deuteronomy 6.5, Mark 12.30, those verses saying the same thing. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. So he's not saying, hey, make sure you cover every component of your life uh, your, your heart component, your soul component, your body or your might component. Um, he's just using those, he's uh, using a, a figure of speech, if you will, to, to throw all of these terms together just to say, worship God with all of who you are. Love God with all of who you are. Uh, Mark 12.30 uses the word soul and mind uh, as well as heart and strength. Uh, and so there's no distinction there. Uh, we can't say, well, there's a heart part of us and a soul part of us and a mind part of us and a strength part of us. He's just throwing all of those in to say all of who you are should be loving God. And then also what we see is often when those terms are used 
together, they're often used in parallel to refer to the same thing. So you think of, uh, I'll skip down to Isaiah 26, verse 9. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. That's Hebrew parallelism, where soul and spirit are referring to the same thing. Obviously, they're both, uh, in, in this passage, referring to seeking the Lord, uh, relating with the Lord. Or in Job 7.11, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So you have both spirit and soul speaking, uh, complaining, uh, talking to the Lord. And we see that in multiple other passages. In Hebrews 4.12, this is one passage that sometimes people use to say, uh, see, there's a clear distinction between soul and spirit. And it says, therefore, the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. My contention of what this is saying is not that he's making a distinction between soul and spirit as if those are two different parts of us, but rather he's making a declarative statement that Scripture, or excuse me, yeah, Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, Scripture is able to do what nothing else is able to do. And he uses the example of make a division between soul and spirit. If there is a distinction between soul and spirit, then that would lessen the power of of what he's saying here. That scripture can do what other things can do too. Make a distinction between soul and spirit. We can make a distinction between soul and spirit. But no, he's saying that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit. It's able to uh, divide the indivisible. So I think that's really a passage that would refer to the, the unity of soul and spirit. Now what's interesting is when you just do a simple word search, you know, using a Bible program or whatever for these terms, soul, spirit, mind, heart, uh, Soul and spirit, um, which, of course, when you do a search for spirit, you've got to take out all the references to the Holy Spirit uh, and other uh, references that wouldn't refer to the nature of man. Uh, but uh, soul, spirit, and mind, mind is, would be the least of these, uh, are used about 200 times each throughout Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. But the word heart is used over a thousand times in Scripture. And so that tells me just by that simple calculation that heart is the Holy Spirit's preferred term for whatever reason for uh, the immaterial part of us, the spiritual uh, part of us. And so uh, that's why we tend to talk about the heart more than we tend to talk about the soul or the spirit, even though we could use all of those terms interchangeably without any distinction or any change in, in understanding of what we're talking about. So what we're going to do next, now that we understand kind of how we're made up, we're made of body and soul, material and material, is we're going to do a biblical cardiology, a study of the heart from Scripture. Okay, now We could uh, uh, say all the same things about the soul, about the spirit. We could look at passages that teach the same thing about the soul and the spirit, but uh, for uh, various reasons, we're just going to stick to the term heart uh, for uh, our study today. What is the heart? You could say, what is the soul? What is the spirit? What is the heart? The heart is the control center of life. Uh, it is the helm. Uh, if you think of some kind of a, a ship or a you know, Star Trek Enterprise or something, uh, it's the helm where everything functions out of. Everything goes back to that central control center uh, that drives everything else. Uh, all of the instructions, all of the thinking, all of the processing, if you will, if you want to use a computer term, it's the CPU of, of, a, of our lives. Uh, it's the, the center of everything else. Without the heart, nothing works. Uh, nothing can work independently. And you have a passage like Proverbs 4.23, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. 
So everything that's coming out of your life, all of your thoughts, all of your words, all of your actions, all of your motivations, all of your emotions, all of those things flow out of your heart. And so he goes on to say, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put devious speech far from you. So that's a way that you guard your heart by by putting off devious speech. Uh, Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed uh, straight in front of you. So where you're looking, what you're thinking about, watch watch the path of your feet and all your ways will be established. And do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. So your actions, your thoughts, what you're paying attention to, uh, your speech, all of those things are what spring out of our life. And those instructions is how we guard our heart. So let's walk through just a variety of things that Scripture says that the, that our heart does just to affirm uh, that the heart is the control center of life. First of all, the heart speaks. Anything that you say, uh, you can ground, you can root, you can find its source in your heart. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the heart speaks, excuse me, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Have you ever been in that situation where you say something and immediately you regret what you say? (laughs) And one of the ways you try and get out of that is to say, oh, I didn't mean that. Or maybe even later on, you know, somebody says, well, you said this. You're like, well, I, I didn't really mean that. Well, unless you're actually being intentionally deceptive, which obviously we can be, uh, you did mean that. It came out not because you didn't mean it, but because you didn't apply a filter <laughs> to prevent it from coming out. Right? And so when, when things come out of you, when, you know, in, a, in the heat of a moment, things fly out of your mouth that whether in that moment or later on, you're reflecting and thinking, how could I ever say that? It's heartbreaking to me how believers, you know, in in their normal course of life uh, have, I'll just use the language of pure speech, God-honoring speech. But then in anger, they curse like a sailor. That happens all the time. I hear people confess that to me <laughs> in, in my office. That's heartbreaking to me. Because to me, that, that's not just a, oh, you have a bad habit. That's a, there's a heart issue there. Your heart is far from God, at least in that aspect. And so when we say things, whether we make threats or accusations or, um, you know, we curse or whatever, that is coming from our heart. We can't blame anybody else for the things that we say, uh, that is coming directly from our heart. I often use the illustration of if I, I don't have a water bottle here, but if I had a water bottle and it was filled with water because it's a water bottle and I shook it and the lid was open, there'd be water you know, all over the top here. And you can ask the question or I could ask the question, why would there be water on the podium? And the answer would be what? Because I shook the water bottle, right? That would seem to be the answer. And there's legitimacy to that. But we can also ask, well, if I shook that water bottle, why isn't there grape juice on the podium? Or why isn't there coffee on the podium? And the answer to that is, because there's water in the bottle. So what comes out of you, blessing, cursing, yes, it's partly because of your circumstances, your environment, but really, what it is that comes out of you uh, is a reflection of what's in the heart. So, let, let me put it this way. Your circumstances, your environment, that, cause, that squeezes you to push something out of you. If, but the question is, what is it that comes out when you get squeezed? <laughs> and you can't blame anybody else if wickedness comes out. That's, that's your own heart being revealed there. So people can squeeze you, you know, they can pressure you, uh, anger you, they can fill you with, you know, or they can uh, bring delightful news and, and praise can come out. But whatever it is that comes out is what's 
what's in the heart. It's nobody else's responsibility but your own. Uh, you have a couple other passages there. I'll just move on to the heart plans. The heart plans. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. That's obviously the Lord's heart. We're made in His image. So Proverbs six eighteen says, A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. It's talking about the abominations of, of the Lord. And so here it's saying that the, we we do have a heart that plans positively. Proverbs 16, the heart, excuse me, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So we, our heart makes plans. We think about the future. We make plans. That comes out of our heart. The heart desires Deuteronomy 14, 26, uh, you may spend the money on whatever your heart desires, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink, whatever your heart desires. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You know, I think what that means is as you're loving the things that, that God loves, that Christ loves, then the desires that are cultivated in your heart will be the same desires that God has. Uh, the heart thinks, Deuteronomy 15, 9, beware that there be no base thought in your heart. So we tend to think of thinking being uh, located in the brain, and certainly the brain is obviously the, the physiological capacity. Uh, it, that's, that's where we do our thinking physiologically. But, uh, but the heart is where we uh, where we think. You could ask, well, where do the thoughts that the brain processes come from? Uh, why do we move from one thought to another? Well, it's because of what's in the heart. The heart drives the brain. We could put it that way. The heart also emotes. We experience emotions out of our heart. Um, Judges sixteen fifteen. How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me. Showing a discrepancy between the heart and the expression uh, of love. Or Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. Ecclesiastes 7, when the face is sad, a heart may be happy. And you see other passages there referring to sorrow and joy in the heart. So emotions take place in the heart. Again, even that, we, we often locate physiologically in the gut. Uh, in fact, Scripture even uses the intestines as the, the place where we experience emotions physiologically. But um, what, what drives that? It's the heart. Everything comes from the heart. I don't know if this is overly technical, but in, in computers, there's a distinction between the CPU and the GPU. The CPU is the central processing unit. That's what drives everything else on the computer. The GPU is a graphics processing unit. That's what often drives what's being displayed on the monitor. Um, a lot of the graphic processing is taking place there on the GPU, but nothing can happen there unless it first gets information from the CPU. So, again, the heart is the center, even though there might be other aspects of us that contribute to our experience of, of emotions and thoughts and, and things like that. Did I lose anybody with that illustration? I've never used that before. That just came to my mind. But, okay. <laughs> um, also, the heart acts. So, we've been talking about internal things, thinking, emotions, um, uh, planning, and whatnot. Uh, here's an external thing. The heart acts. Uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 2. Return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul. Uh, or Proverbs 3, 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 4. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice deeds of wickedness. So all of our actions, what we do with our hands, what we do with our feet, uh, what we what we enact physiologically, it all comes from uh, fundamentally the heart. And then finally, the heart worships. Psalm 119.10, With all my heart I have sought you. Or Deuteronomy 11.16, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve 
gods and worship them. So idolatry, false worship, is a, a, a work of the heart. And that's reflected in Jeremiah 13. This wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who walk in stubbornness of their hearts and have gone after other gods. Same thing there with Isaiah 29. So we worship out of our heart. So we could say, who you are is who you are in your heart. If we want to boil you down to what is it that makes you, you, it would be contained in your heart. Now, obviously, we don't, we can't, you know, do surgery and pull that out of you. We're not talking about the physical heart here. Uh, this is the spiritual, immaterial part that no one can physically see with their eyes. But we can contain all of who you are in your heart, and you can deceive yourself as to who you really are, what you're really like. Right? So many people say, "Yeah, I'm a good person." Unbelievers. Uh, you can deceive others. You can put on a portrayal of yourself to others to make people think that you're, that you're great, that you're loving, that you're kind, that you're fun, that you're whatever. Uh, but then in the secrecy of your own home, you know, you know that that's not who you are. You can deceive others. But you cannot deceive God because God knows your heart. Right? We have those passages, Psalm 44, 21. Would not God find this out? He knows the secrets of the heart. Romans 8, 27, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. So God knows our heart. God knows who we really are inside. We, sometimes we can deceive ourselves to the degree that we really think we are a particular way. I remember when I was a teenager, I was uh, applying for a job, more of a promotion in, within a, a job. And I told the, the guy that was interviewing me, I'm a really good communicator. Well... <laughs> I just I thought I was a good communicator, um, but after getting the job and after working for a while, he's like, "You're not a very good communicator." <laughs> and I don't mean like having a conversation. I mean like you know talking with employees and managing and coordinating and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so sometimes we can just think of ourselves a certain way and be like, "Yeah, this is what I'm like. This is my these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses." Whatever. But we can be self-deceived. We can think of ourselves as differently than we actually are. But we cannot deceive God. And that's important for us to remember as believers because you know, our approach to life should not just be, uh, I just want to feel good about myself or I just want other people to, to see me rightly. Our approach to life should be, I want to glorify God. And I'm not going to be glorifying God if I'm trying to deceive Him, <laughs> if I'm trying to pretend to be something that I'm not. Right? We want to conform ourselves uh, to the likeness of Christ so that we can actually uh, be glorifying to God from the center of our hearts. We can't you know, praise God on a Sunday morning and go live a wicked life the rest of the week and think that, that we're going to be glorifying God. So we, we have to recognize that God knows our heart. So, as I said earlier, because the heart is the core and the wellspring of life, we will never truly address a problem until we address the heart. Right? You can settle a dispute. You can get two parties to agree when they formerly disagreed. Uh, but you're never truly addressing the core of a problem until you address the heart. And as we've said, God has given us sufficient and necessary truth in his word to do that. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. All right, we got to speed up here. <laughs> uh, this is one of the longest lessons in the, in the class. Uh, one of the primary purposes, in fact, the primary purpose, I would argue, of the heart, we've talked about all the different things that the heart does. It talks, it thinks, it plans, it emotes, it acts, but the primary purpose, uh, function of the heart is to worship. That's what we were made to do. We were made to worship. Uh, Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. And you know, 1 Corinthians 10.31, we talked about this when we talked about glorifying God as the opportunity of conflict. 
whether then you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So these don't mention the heart specifically, but if the heart really is the center of everything in life, then the heart should fundamentally be driven by the desire and the aim uh, to worship God above all things. That's what we were made for. God made us to worship him, to, to live for him, to serve him. But the problem is because of the fall, false worship is what we do. False worship is what we do. False worship is the only thing that unbelievers are capable of. They are not capable of worshiping God truly. Uh, And even believers who are capable of worshiping God, we often uh, practice false worship. We see there Romans 1, 21 to 23, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. So what we did in our heart was we we made a replacement. We made an exchange. Again, speaking of unbelievers, uh, of we don't want God to be our God. We want these other things to be our gods. Exodus 20, of course, the first commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Being the, the first commandment there, why is it the first commandment? Because God knows that's our first tendency. The first thing we're tempted to do as his creation who are cursed by sin is commit false worship. Now, what 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 is a God? Uh, a God, as you see there, is anything uh, to which you attribute, there's a typo, Uh, to which you attribute the power to control the world, to control your circumstances, to meet your needs, to protect you, to uh, provide for you, give you children, bring happiness, satisfy your desires, rescue you from enemies, define your identity, give you meaning and significance in life, give you the will to live, and so on and so on. This is why uh, in many cultures they have multiple gods because uh, they have gods that meet specific purposes. You have the rain god, you have the... Uh, the the uh, childbearing uh, God. You have the uh, the hunting God. You have the moon God. You have all of these gods who are supposed to do things for you uh, to meet your needs, to provide for you, and and give you the things that you desire, take care of you, protect you, and so on. So worshiping a false god then is when we look to any object or person or situation to achieve for us what only God can do, right? That list of what are what is a God, God does all of those things. He provides for us. He cares for us. He gives us meaning and purpose and significance in life. Uh, he um, controls the world. He controls our circumstances. He rescues us. He satisfies us. All of those things we could look throughout Scripture and see how God himself declares that he does those things for us. But... False worship looks to other things other than God to achieve for us what only God can do. And this is so well represented in the words of Jeremiah 2.13. This is God's uh, repudiation, rebuke of, of Israel when he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. There's a very powerful word picture here. He says there's two evils that Israel has committed, and and these are the two evils that we also commit, even as believers sometimes, when we commit false worship. First evil is we turn away from the living God who is the fountain of living waters. You think about water, one of the most, uh, it is the most basic necessity of life. Uh, You can live a long time without food, some of us more than others. You can live uh, you know, without all kinds of things in life, but you cannot live very long at all without water. I mean, you can hardly talk for 50 minutes without water, <laughs> without feeling the strain of, of the need for water. Um, 
Water is the most basic necessity of life. And God says, I'm the fountain of living waters. From me, you have everything you need in super abundance. And it's always fresh. And it's always clean. It's always pure. It's always exactly what you need and beyond what you need. And the first evil is we, we look at that and we say, mm, that's nice, but no thank you. I think I can do better for myself if I provide for my basic needs somewhere else. That's the first evil. The second evil is that having turned away from God, we hew for ourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So a cistern, as you probably know, is basically a a hole that you dig in the ground in those ancient days in an arid culture that would collect uh, both runoff water but mostly rainwater in that time. And it would just be a, a source of water that could be used when it wasn't raining. And... Uh, you know, however they would technically do it, but probably pack it with clay or something to, to make sure that the water just doesn't seep in the ground. But the, the cisterns that he pictures here are broken. They're cracked. And so the water actually does seep through. And when you have something like that in the ground, uh, which is meant to hold water, but the water seeps through, what you're left with is a puddle of water at the bottom that is really muddy water. <coughs> water primarily mixed with dirt. And if you're looking to that for sustenance, you're, you're in the desert, dry and thirsty land, and you come across a puddle of muddy water, that might be of benefit to you in a moment of desperation. You might say, oh, I needed this so bad. I was about to die of thirst, but now I have some moisture in me. It might be a little crunchy. <laughs> it might be a little gritty. But, you know, thankfully I have this muddy water. There might be some benefit, some moment of pleasure, if you will, in that when you're so desperate, but it's not going to last. It's not going to be truly satisfying. It's not going to fulfill really what you truly need. But that's what we keep going after. You know, all all the while over here, there's this gushing fountain flowing of living water. And we're like, no, thank you. I think I can do better by myself. And we keep going back to this muddy water, to things that aren't God, to to provide for us, to care for us, to give us meaning and purpose. And when we think in those terms, it is completely irrational, right? And why in the world would somebody do that? Well, they would only do it if they're thinking irrationally, right? If they're just insane. I would submit to you, that's exactly what we are, spiritually speaking. That's what unbelievers are by nature. That's what we even believers often do uh, because we are still under the curse of sin, even though we have the capacity to, to overcome that. Another illustration is in Isaiah 44, verses 9 to 17. And I just summarized that larger section with these words. Those who fashion a graven image are all, uh, are all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. And then it talks about, it gives this illustration. He takes wood, a guy who cuts down a tree, and he takes some of that wood. He warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, but the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God, right? So the idea, just to bring it to this moment, is if I were to take this this uh, uh, pulpit or whatever else you want to call it, and you know break it apart and say, I, you know, it's really cold outside, so I'm going to make a fire with part of it, and another part of it, I'm going to construct into a little idol, or a little what shrine or whatever, and I'm going to bow down before that shrine and worship it. I'm going to warm myself, and I'm going to. Worship it, I'm going to say, you are my God. And everybody would say, that is insanity. That's crazy. You need to go to the crazy house. You need medications or whatever. But again, that is, that's what we do. God himself had given everything Israel needed. Right? He had defined them. He had provided for them. He protected them. He made incredible promises to them. He gave them a national identity. He gave them laws uh, that were good and righteous and just. 
but they turned away from him and worshipped false gods. Right? And again, we do the very same thing. There are things that we want because we think it's going to satisfy us. We think it's going to bring us happiness in life, even if it's just for a moment. We think it'll give us meaning and purpose. And we're willing to die on those hills because of how strongly we feel they will be good for us. And so we take things that God has given us to worship Him, whether it be a spouse, a relationship, um, possessions to to worship Him, to glorify Him. Uh, He's given us a job. He's given us money. uh, He's given us intellect, abilities, skills. He's given us all of those things to worship Him, to to praise Him, to use for His purposes, uh, to reflect the character of Christ and show others how great God is. And instead, we distort those things and try and seek from them our own meaning and purpose and what we want. And so instead of worshiping God, we commit idolatry. Paul Tripp says in his book, uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, an idol of the heart is anything that rules me other than God. As worshiping beings, human beings always worship someone or something. This is not a situation where some people worship and some people don't. If God isn't ruling my heart, someone or something will. It is the way we were made. Just to illustrate this real quick. Um, in California, I was pastor. I was uh, counseling a, a, a couple, and uh, they had a rebellious teenage daughter. And you know that's hard enough in itself, right? And so, as we were working through that and just trying to encourage them and minister to them in that situation, what I came to find out and learn uh, from the mother is that the reason it was particularly difficult for her is because she had this idol of. I must be a good mom. And I want other people to see me as a good mom. And so if I have a rebellious teenage daughter, the greater concern is not my daughter, the greater concern is my reputation. How I think about myself and how other people think about me. And it was beautiful to see once we kind of pinpointed that and identified that, Uh, The whole situation changed. Her emotions changed. Her thinking changed. Her outlook changed. Her approach to her daughter changed. Because she realized, I've been making this all about me. (laughs) When I need to be making this about loving my daughter. And so that's just one example of how sometimes we can take what we think is a good desire. I just want my daughter to behave well and honor the Lord and whatever. And we can make it about ourselves. Or, or, you know, you think of the classic uh, idea of, you know, you just get this brand new car. And if you have a little kid, you know, he he takes his bike through the garage and the handlebars scratch the car on the way out. You know, it's happened in our house, not with a brand new car, but uh, it's like, "Ah, why did you do that? I can't believe that's a brand new car. Why do we why do we explode in anger when something that we just bought that's brand new, you know, that we prize? has been scratched, broken, you know, uh, lowered in value, whatever. Why do we blow up? Because we find something of value in the pristine, in the perfect, in the new, in the shiny. Uh, And it's going to be different things for different people, but there's something in us that we're attributing to that condition, the new condition, that now, because it's no longer that condition, all hell breaks loose in my heart. My emotions go everywhere uh, because I no longer have that perfect car. Right? I no longer have the perfect car, and so uh, I'm going to blow up in anger. And, but it still drives. It still drives. That's right. Um, you know, we, we could give example after example of how this works out in life. We can desire a relationship. For those of you who are single or have been single for many years, uh, the the desire to get married is a good and honorable desire. But if we elevate that desire thinking, this is what's going to make me happy. If I can have this, if I can achieve marriage, then 
life will be everything I want it to be. And so we respond to our singleness with frustration, with impatience, with bitterness. You know, when we get in a relationship, it doesn't work out. We get angry. You know, there's all kinds of things that could potentially come out manifesting that we're, what we're really wanting is a relationship more than anything. Um, I mean, you could just think of your own life, those moments where you've been devastated in your life. And I'm not talking about loss of a loved one, uh, though sometimes that can that can be similar. But um, just like I can think of a situation in my own life where a, a job that I didn't get years ago was just devastating to me. And I remember crying out to God, literally weeping. I've never cried so hard in my life. I wanted it so bad. I wanted it so bad. Well, yeah, I responded emotionally to not getting that job because I wanted it so bad. I wasn't like, well, Lord, I guess that wasn't your will for my life and move on, right? I was I was just devastated. And we, we can all think of situations like that where we something has so gripped our heart, a desire, a longing that either we respond emotionally or we, we come into conflict, we fight with others because we, we can't have what we want. And so you can see some questions there. Uh, man, time is flying. Um, of how, how can you evaluate uh, your own heart? Do I want something that God does not want for me? You know, I want to be wealthy and rich, and so if the stock market plunges, I respond sinfully. Uh, or do I want something that God wants, but I want it so much I become ungodly to obtain it? You know, I lower my standards. I'll, I'll you know, do anything uh, so that I can have a relationship with somebody. Um, you know, I have the example there of being on time to church. Uh, it's a good desire to be on time to church, but if you're willing to sin in order to be on time, you know, yelling and screaming at your spouse or your kids, come on, get ready, and then you're yelling at them on the way to church, we're going to be late, I can't believe you guys are always so slow. You're willing to sin when, when, you, when you don't get what you want. That's, that's an idol. Uh, am I controlled by expectations such that when my expectations are not realized, I become ungodly in thought, word, or deed? You know, wanting other people to live up to a certain standard to do the things that you think they should do? Uh, do I have a perceived right that when I'm denied that right, I become ungodly? The right to be treated with respect, the right to be loved, the right to be justly and fairly treated. Uh, do I have an ungodly mindset that leads to ungodly thoughts, words, or actions? You know, Someone can sound really spiritual and thinking, I don't have to worry about finances. God's going to provide for me. But then they act ungodly by spending. You know, They're saying I'm living by faith, but really they're living foolishly because they're not being a good steward. So there's just various questions there you can think through for, for yourself. But ultimately, you can narrow it down to these two questions. What am I wanting that I'm not getting? Or what am I getting that I'm not wanting? Uh, do I want something that I engage in a conversation to try and get what I want? Uh, or am, is something happening to me? Somebody's saying something to me or somebody's acting upon me in a, in a way that I'm not wanting. You know, I'm not wanting my coworkers to, to, to treat me a particular way. Uh, I'm not wanting this day to work out the way that I thought it was or the, the way I want it to be, and so then I respond sinfully. Whatever it is that you can pinpoint of what you're wanting or what you're not wanting that's actually happening, that has become a craving or a ruling desire or an idol in your life. <coughs> and that then sets the stage for conflict. When you have something that's elevated to that level, that you want it so bad that you're willing to fight for it or fight when you don't get it, or fight when, when you get the opposite. All right, we've got just a couple minutes left. If false worship is the problem, if we're worshiping things that we shouldn't, uh, we're uh, looking to other things to fulfill us that we shouldn't, if false worship is the problem, then the, the solution is true worship. True worship. 
All of our wants, desires, expectations, perceived rights, mindsets must be submitted to Christ who alone deserves our worship. At the end of 2 Corinthians 10 there, and we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Or Romans 12, we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the solution of false worship could be summarized as just being a disciple of Christ. Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So we have to be willing to die to all of our desires, die to all of our hopes, all of our expectations, for the sake of following Christ. doesn't mean he's always going to demand that we give up everything, but we have to hold everything in an open hand. And if he chooses to take something from us, or if he chooses to put something in our hand, a situation, a, a problem, a struggle that we don't want, then we need to worship him uh, in, in that situation. Right, the, the illustration there, obviously we don't have time to go through it, but you can see on the right triangle uh, that there's a number of things surrounding the heart there that are the kinds of things that we tend to lift up to the place of idolatry. Now, power, control, uh, pleasure, play, just want to have fun, entertainment, people, relationships, wanting other people to... Uh, to think of you a particular way, health, uh, prestige, reputation, possessions, money, peace, <coughs> popularity, protection. Those are all the kinds of things that we have a tendency to idolize, to seek after, uh, to fight over. And the way to respond to that is to... Uh, transfer allegiance from those things over to the Lord to worship God, cultivate godly character uh, character traits and relationship skills, and that will lead to uh, a reduction or elimination of conflict. But it starts with the heart. Uh, false worship must be replaced by true worship. All right, we're, we're out of time, so let me pray.